Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Brendan Klingenberg and Simon Bozik Levinson. Unfortunately, we're here to talk about another tragedy in the world of music. Juice World, who was a rapper, a singer, and a real talent, died just after turning 21 on December 8th, and we thought we would use this episode to look back at his life and his music and to look at the sort of state of the music industry that might have played some part in leading us here. Brendan wrote a really excellent obituary for Juice World. It's going to be the next issue of Rolling Stone. You've also interviewed him a few times over the years. Maybe let's start at the beginning. Where did he come from? What was he like? Why was he important? Yeah, so he was a kid from Chicago. He wasn't someone who like was a sure bet to break into the music industry, but he... Um, he started recording in, in like 2016 and 2017, which is when SoundCloud rap was kind of booming, which was this like very anarchic scene. All The name comes from the platform that everyone was uploading their music to. And he kind of came at the tail end of that. There'd been some, some like very established stars had already been minted by the time Juice started re- releasing music. But he cut through the noise really quickly. And that's because... You know, we talk about how talented he is, but he had just this incredible facility with Melody. And so he had this like added benefit of working with a Chicago producer named Nick Mira, who gave him some really excellent beats. And then he released a few things, but then the two songs that really carried him to the top of the SoundCloud charts were um, All Girls Are the Same and Lucid Dreams. Both of them are songs that you hear them once and you can kind of get that they will be hits. And so he had a really rapid rise because of those. And I mean, part of SoundCloud rap and part of his style, and we did a whole episode on Lil Peep, who also died way too young, was this merger of sort of rap influences and rap beats with very obvious sort of nods to emo and, and other rock stuff. Yeah, I mean, the SoundCloud rap thing is kind of a pretty facile term at this point, just because there's, totally. there's so many different stylistic strains that came out of there but one of them was this thing that's been termed as emo rap and Lil Peep is the other real stylistic example of that but yeah Juice came up on a lot of different influences and he was very willing to pull from like the early 2000s like whiny singer like style and he married it to like trap beats in a way that sounded like a bad idea but he really made it work in a way that still sounded cool somehow. Yeah I mean reading interviews with him he would shout out both famous rock acts like Blink-182, Panic at the Disco, occasionally Fall Out Boy, which was the first thing I heard the Fall Out Boy in him, which I think was mostly Panic at the Disco. But he also liked Senses Fail and <laughs> and other sort of next level down emo and sort of pop punk stuff. And some of it was stuff he dug into pretty deeply. Some of it was stuff he got into apparently from reading interviews with him. He, he like would play video games and here the soundtrack would have these emo and, and rock bands and it just kind of like went into his bloodstream and in fact there's one interview where he was at least where he was saying that he really felt he belonged on the rock charts which is a in some cases a, not an unreasonable assertion for some of his music i mean we've written a lot about the uh how the charts categorize people i would say he definitely has a case on some of those songs he wasn't always rapping he sang a lot it's always almost always drenched in auto-tune or, or another kind of filter. And yeah, he was pulling from a lot of different places. He was pretty obsessive about what he listened to and seemed deeply unafraid to pull anything he heard and try and do it himself. And tell me about the times that you met him and talked to him, I think at least once in person, other times on the phone. What, what were your interactions with him? Um, the first time I met him was probably a couple months after 
All Girls Are the Same and Lucid Dreams kind of became this like preordained hit. Like they weren't probably on the radio yet, but you kind of knew they were going to be. And I was interested because of like, there's a couple artists every few years that the music industry just kind of like reorients itself around and kind of accepts that it's going to be the next big thing and they need to like adjust to that as a reality. And so he was one that off of these two songs led to like a very buzzed about bidding war. He signed with Interscope for a reported $3 million off the strength of three songs. And so I kind of hit Interscope and was like, I want to meet him next time he's in New York. He was very much just a kid. He was, I think, 19 at the time. I was working at Complex. It was before I started at Rolling Stone. And he uh, was wearing like a motocross t-shirt that was a Supreme collab they'd done. Um, and his publicist seemed a little stressed out. I think he'd been wearing it for like a couple days. <laughs> he just really loved that shirt. And then, you know, like any teenager, he was an interesting interview in that it was like talking to, like if you go home for Thanksgiving and like your cousin, like young cousin is there and you're like, hey, buddy, what are you up to? And he's like, not really into talking to you. That was kind of the deal with Juice for a little while where he was he was also very nonchalant about the fact that like these songs were getting very popular and he was getting a lot of money. He kind of just wanted to make more music. He always would tell me that he was surprised that Lucid Dreams was the one that like catapulted him to fame because he always thought he had catchier songs like in the vault. He was releasing those just to like start get, gain some awareness of him. But he always thought that like he was going to reach the top of the charts, but it would be a little later, like with a different song that he had. I know that I responded instantly to Lucid Dreams and a bunch of his other stuff. Simon, what, I know, I think you were a fan too, pretty much immediately. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's a quality to songs like Lucid Dreams that you kind of can't deny uh, the catchiness of the melody, but also the pain in his voice. I mean, you know, Brendan, you talked about sort of the whiny rock guy styling that he kind of had to his vocals a lot of the time 15 years ago. We would have called Lisa Dreams a great emo record. Mm -hmm. That resonated with me. Uh, I liked his second album even more, the album he put out just a few months ago, Death Race for Love. There's an incredible diversity of styles and sounds on that album. You can really hear this sort of restless, curious, omnivorous musical mind at work. Mm -hmm. That album made me excited to hear, you know, what Juice World would do next. Uh, it's obviously you know, tragic now that that's sort of cut off. Let's hear a bit of Lucid Dreams if we can. Take back the love that I gave you It's to the point why I love and I hate you And I cannot change I mean, the melodic cadences obviously of that and a lot of his songs are straight off of as you said the i like the way you phrase that the whiny singer genre of 2000s rock is profound influence on the way he does melody it's that like that little like just injecting that amount of pain into the delivery that pushes that song into like really immediate territory where you start hearing it and you're like i'm gonna like right now we played a clip of it and i'm like I wish we could play the rest of it <laughs> what i would say about him and i think in your obit you made the case for him as kind of the best of his cohort, right? The most talented. Yeah, I would say of that cohort. Very specific cohort, yes. Yeah. Him or Lil Uzi Vert, I think, are the only two that I think artistically like delivered on the, the promise of that scene. Everyone else either flamed out artistically or are in prison or, or died. It's been a scene that kind of cratered immediately. Yeah, and I want to get into some of the reasons why that happened. What I'll say is when I listen to him, I hear this tremendous musicality. Because I think that's something that, if you compare him to Lil Peep, Lil Peep was, I think, still developing. He was someone who, to me, he wasn't hearing chords correctly. His, he had a lot of kind of like raw talent, but it wasn't as musical as what Juice World does. He wouldn't kind of ride the chords and ride the beats in a way that was as facile, whereas Juice World just seemed to have a, a real sort of prodigal talent with this stuff. And he told... 
you or Elias that his debut album, a lot of the stuff was done in like a 72 hour period. So you're talking about an incredibly talented dude. Yeah. So he, he was interesting. He was a big believer that his first instincts were always the right instincts and he didn't want to, he would go over the songs again, but it was a lot of like editing and ad libs and like, what if they like switched the beat up a little bit, but he wouldn't go back and like redo the lyrics. He wouldn't go back and redo the melodies very often. And so he was able to record it like a very, very fast pace. For his first album, he said he had a couple hundred songs that he didn't put on it. For his second album, that number had grown exponentially by that time. But yeah, he would move into the studio when it was time to finish an album and stay there for days at a time. He told me that like the studio was almost like a hobby for him. So a lot of what his... He was pretty cognizant of the fact that a lot of people stop liking to make music once they're popular for making music. And he was always seemed pretty determined to make sure that like it always felt like a release or a, a, like a, a place that would be fun to go um, as opposed to something that he had to do to continue his livelihood. And I think something that distinguishes him from, I mean, Lil Nas X is entirely from a different scene, but someone like Lil Nas X, when he talks about what he does, he talks about himself as almost like a meme maker and an attention grabber as much as sort of a maker of music. Mm-hmm. Whereas Juice World flat out says that he wanted to be seen as a musician. He was pretty pure, I think, in his desires and approach for this stuff. He just lived within the world that his music created, I think. Yeah, I mean, you do hear that from a lot of musicians where they're like, I'm just all about the art. But with him, I I believed him. I interviewed him over the course of probably two years, and he never really said anything different about his approach to music or what he wanted out of it. And he just kind of wanted to be respected as a good musician. I end the piece I wrote for the next issue with a quote from him from the last time we talked where he was just like, everybody who knows me knows what I am, and that's just a hard worker and a musician. And that was kind of, I think, how he wanted to be perceived more than anything else. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just gotta get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you gotta get out of the house, you gotta have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code Rolling Stone. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code Rolling Stone for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Now, I want to get into some of the broader issues, but him specifically, I mean, I have to say, first of all, I'm at this point really sick and sad about listening again to an album and being like, oh man, that really is pretty prophetic of the way that artist would die. Like he's saying about, he's saying about dying young, he's saying about getting high too much, he's saying, you know, and song after song, you're like, oof, oof, oof. And it's just like, I think maybe like when you're a teenager and, and, and an artist dies and then you listen and it's kind of like, 
there's something a little alluring about it. And now I'm not amused at all. I'm not, I don't think it's cool. It's just like a bummer, honestly. His album is like that. You listen to his debut and it's just like again and again and again, he talks about dying young and things that kind of lead in this direction. But the question is, he could have just as easily lived and it could have just been stuff in songs. So how do you see that? How much was he really predicting something and how much was he just playing with lyrical tropes, if you know what I mean? The way Juice talked about drugs was probably pulled from real life, but it was also just like a thematic fascination for him where like the thing that you do to escape pain in your life is a thing that will end up killing you somehow. And so I think he rapped about drugs the way Jay-Z raps about money or Kanye raps about Kanye or Pusha T raps about like selling drugs. I don't think it was like him like trying to self-mythologize ahead of an early death. I think it was just something that he found endlessly compelling. And when he started freestyling, it was always like close to the top of his mind. And he also had, you know, funny lyrics about drugs. I think the one that I like and a lot of people have cited is like, I'm in my black bands doing cocaine with my black friends, switch up to the white bands doing codeine with my white friends. I mean, that's funny. I mean, it yeah. wasn't, you know, and, and, and then that, there's... And that hook is very catchy. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's a mistake to kind of look at the album as, as sort of this dark prophecy. Yeah, I think he was trying to make good songs and that was something that like he made songs with very high stakes. Like he rapped about heartbreak the same way he rapped about drugs. Like it was, it was always going to kill him. And then you do. Yeah. I think there's going to be in the next couple, couple months and years, as we like talk more about his catalog, I think a lot of it is going to circle around like how dark and heartbroken it was, but there was a lot of fun moments. Like the reason those songs connected is not because it's not like the early two thousands emo stuff that we're talking about where it is just like pain on a page. He made songs that sound very good and like people can play at parties, like even if that's what it is. Like a lot of this heartbreak and drug stuff will be. Clearly, you've never been to Emo Night because they. they, (laughs) But yeah. Um, Yeah. And then he'll also like rap about like eating ramen with a gun. Like he's like using that for a fork. And like that is very clearly like figurative language that is there to raise the stakes and be kind of funny. He he was a a little more multifaceted than I think like the, the tributes will attest to. I think that's true. And it, it is interesting to see the, how much of the themes of emo he took on this, you know, I would call it kind of like casual misogyny that is, but it's the exact strain of casual mi- misogyny that's in like early Pete Wentz lyrics and stuff. Like uh, all girls are the same is a good example. And I, I think in some ways it's as much a lyrical trope as it is an actual attitude. And I think that's why people for the most part let that slide. Right. It's a, it's a lyrical trope. It's also, I mean, this is music made by a very young person. That too. As, of, as was a lot of the emo stuff. Exactly. Yeah. In yeah. both cases, you're dealing with sort of like yeah. late adolescent men who have their hearts broken and feel sad about it and express that in a way that's not, you know, super sophisticated or doesn't hold up to like deep scrutiny, um, but is nonetheless authentic and real and resonates with people. In general, what what do you make of what we were talking about? Just the, all the, the darkness and pain on the album? I mean, the, you know, the thing is when almost any artist dies tragically young, it almost always ends up you know seeming like they they foretold it or like there were elements of, of totally. prediction or foreshadowing in their music the reality of young artists who die young is that it's usually a combination of bad circumstances and just very bad luck uh, that something like this happens uh, it's tempting to try to go back and read meaning into the things that came before that but the reality like you said is this is just an incredible bummer and just a, a bad thing that happened how would you characterize the kind of larger music world's reaction to his death like what have people had to say out there I mean, it's shock and sadness across the board. You know, same as me, I think that the music world in general thought he was like a supremely talented, very young person. And like, I think Death Phrase for Love is a really good example of a direction that he was going in where 
I don't think that album is like a classic, but I thought he had one in him. Like, I think he was going in this direction where like I was going to listen to every Juice World project from here on out. And I'm, it's just uh, a tragedy that we won't get to. You talked about kind of the, uh, where he came from the beginning of his career. What were the last few months like for him? He was flying around in a, in a private jet. Which I perhaps question the economic uh, sense of, but I, I can't blame him for doing it. Well, he was actually off tour at, oh, at yeah. that point. Yeah, he he just finished up a tour in Australia. The trip from L.A. to Chicago was not to make a show. He, he, he actually had a show back in L.A. that was supposed to be happening this weekend. You know, he was living the life of a, a young star. Like, he was one of the most streamed artists on the planet. This year was kind of when, if you think of last year when he kind of broke through, he went straight from, you know, recording songs basically in his bedroom to suddenly collaborating with people like Brendan Urie, who like he'd looked up to for a long time. He was touring with people like Nicki Minaj without doing the like circuit that a lot of young rappers have to go through where you start to like get your footing before you end up with a huge audience. Um, he kind of skipped that whole step. And this year seemed to be where like he was just trying to continue the trend. He was re- recording a lot by all accounts, moving around a fair bit, doing things like touring Australia. And then you know, a lot of like music video shoots and all the all the attendant like jobs that come with being a star. And then uh, from what I understand, he loved to play video games like he he when he was home, he was home. He wasn't like a huge member of the scene. He had a he had a girlfriend. Yeah. It's funny when he actually talked about drugs in interviews as opposed to in songs, he made it clear that I think he told the Times, I smoke weed and every now and then I slip up and do something that's poor judgment. I have a lot going for me. I want to be there. You don't have to overdose to not be there. And he also said that after Lil Peep died, he cut back on his drug use. So he was cognizant, as also he actually mentioned sometimes in songs, he was cognizant of not doing too many drugs and being careful. Yeah, I mean, the last time we spoke, he told me he was sober at the time. And he, he was basically like, it's very hard. There's a lot of temptations. But um, he was he was trying to cut it all out. I mean, the fact is that in every era, both just people in general and artists are somewhat subject to what the <laughs> the drugs of choice in the culture are. And, you know, the opiates and uh, benzos are unfortunately a potentially dangerous brand of drugs. And that that's proven to be a problem. It's, it's like those are drugs that can kill you in the wrong doses. And that's what we've seen that happen a few times recently. And I mean, we saw Tom Petty and Prince OD on, uh, on opiates. So it's unfortunately just something that, that's in the larger culture. And I, I guess to a certain extent, we don't know the full details of what happened. That is an aspect of what happened, I guess. I mean, the country is in an opioid epidemic. It, stars are just as susceptible to those kinds of addictions as anybody else. It appears that that is involved in his death, but the autopsy has not been released. So we don't know what was in his system yet. And that, that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner. But that's been a lot of the reports that have come out suggest that it was an opioid. He also was under, it appears, scrutiny from the authorities. According to TMZ, they searched his jet in November, and this involved uh, an invasive search of, of the jet was directly preceded his death. I realize a lot of the details we're still trying to nail down, but what do we know about what happened, this sort of blow-by-blow of what happened? Uh, according to, I mean, the, the best reporting so far has come from the Chicago Tribune, and according to their reports, uh, essentially when Juice's plane landed at Chicago's Midway Airport, the FBI had directed Homeland Security to search his bags. Essentially, he had, he had a large team with him. 
and they found um, a significant quantity of weed and some other drugs. And during the search, Juice World had a seizure. One of the agents administered Narcan, which is um, basically meant to uh, block the effects of an, of an opioid uh, overdose. And he regained consciousness, but when he got to the hospital, he was pronounced dead about an hour after he landed. And we'll break soon, but I wanted to get into this sort of larger issues. I mean, part of what's happening, you could say that, you know, very young people have become stars very quickly in music for a long time. I mean, even, you know, like Biggie was like 25 when he died and younger than that when he broke through. People have been very young for a long time, but there's clearly in this world of lack of gatekeepers and barriers, people are becoming more famous quicker. It's something we talked a lot about in uh, both in the, in the Lil Peep episode and in the, the investigative story we ran on, on his death, that there appear to be a lack of sort of, and again, we don't know specifically about Juice WRLD's situation, but a lot of the sort of protection that was built into a more organized music business seems to have slipped away a little bit as people are more on their own and it seems to be causing real problems. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, truthfully, I think the music industry has never been great at protecting well, artists too, who have substance course, issues. Yeah. You know, well, what I'd say is, is a really bad, <laughs> a really bad, historically bad situation seems to have gotten even worse. It does seem that way. And I think, you know, obviously without knowing the full facts here and without pointing any fingers, it's true that society at large doesn't have the support system that should be in place for young people who have substance abuse issues. It's too hard for people to get help. We don't know the exact specifics of how that played into the situation, but it seems like a factor. I would also say, yeah, the, the music industry has never protected artists from this kind of stuff. Once you give someone who's potentially interested in drugs a, an enormous amount of money as the form of signing a record label contract, you're suddenly going to have drug problems and it's part of the music industry's like, like, it's like almost a cornerstone. I would say the other part of this is like culture generally is accelerating. Stuff happens faster now. Stars get created much quicker than they ever used to. Like Juice World's a good example, but someone like Billie Eilish is another one where she is by far the most like listened to artists of the year and that came in a year where like no one had heard of her before and that stuff like Lil Nas X is another good example like this stuff is going to keep happening these stars are going to keep getting minted faster than we can keep up with and someone's going to go from like relative obscurity to being like a household name in a much much faster way and Juice World is an example of that but I don't think that that's necessarily like the cause of death. I think it's just something we're going to have to reckon with in general. Yeah. His mother did say that he had a battle with prescription drug dependency. So I guess we know that much. Yep. Again, this is more general stuff that may or may not apply specifically to him, but it, it is incredible. I mean, people said about Justin Bieber when he kind of first got really famous that it was sort of uh, like conducting a psychological experiment because while people had been very famous before, they maybe hadn't gotten as famous as quick and they also weren't famous under a level of scrutiny in the social media world that anyone had experienced before. And I feel like we're, we're sort of conducting that experiment over and over again by making people who had been ordinary people, ordinary teenagers like eight months before, incredibly famous and giving them private jets and stuff and seeing what happens. And I mean, it's cool. It's great that dream of instant stardom is, can be made real so many times, but it also seems dangerous. Not that there's really anything that can be done about it. I don't know. Right. It's to some extent playing with fire and it, it's not that it's going to end tragically every time or most times, but sometimes it is. And that's going to be very sad when it, it does happen. It's also the genre itself 
And again, you're absolutely right. The SoundCloud rap was never really exactly a genre. It was a, a phenomenon that had multiple sort of subgenres in it, and there's a lot going on. But it's already people are declaring it dead with his death, even though um, and even though they'd already been declaring it dead like a year ago anyway. But even more dead, I guess. Yeah, like SoundCloud rap as a genre is an interesting one in that is it is a genre named after a tech company. It is not a like <laughs> exactly. It is not a like stylistic signifier in any kind of way. All of these rappers had different sounds. I think if you look at it as a loose connection of people who use the same tools to get popular at the same time, and like there's some interplay between their work. Yeah, that generation of artists has been decimated. Uh, you have XXX Tentacion. He got shot at the age of 20. Takashi Six Nine is awaiting sentencing. He's facing. I believe 36 years to life in prison, um, unless the judge decides to grant him a more lenient sentence. You have Lil Peep, you have Juice World, you have all these names of people who got famous very fast at the same time and didn't really make it through the gauntlet that fame comes with. And so it's also unfair to group these people together because XXX and 6ix9ine are not the same as Lil Peep and Juice World, who like had a very different like route to start him and a lot less to talk about on their personal side. And then artistically, you have people like Lil Pump and Lil Yachty who came up and they also flamed out critically. Like they don't make music that people really pay attention to anymore. That also happened faster. Like if you have hits like that, you used to get like a runway of maybe a couple years to figure out what kind of music you're making. And no, it, it just kind of goes away pretty fast right now. Yeah, Sam and I were talking about that very thing on the way over, just that Lil Yachty, I mean, who knows, he may have some other form of fame. I know he's trying to, to, he has a sitcom coming on Quibi or whatever that is coming up, so who knows. But yes, it's like Lil Yachty, we we also mentioned Lil Xan, who was the kind of the the most cynical major label version of all this, who is like completely over, really was never a thing in the first place. But there is this rapid fizzling of the peripherals that that's what we were talking about it's just like and that little pump who was again of less talented dare i say kind of iteration of some aspects of this scene completely fizzled whereas that people were treating him like he was about to become the biggest star in the world and it just like disappeared in a puff of smoke you're right i guess it's just it's the flip side of that speed Right. Right. I mean, I think as with any sort of like youth oriented scene, there are always going to be kind of novelty acts and cartoons who are part of that. Something that's particularly sad about what happened with Juice World is he was someone who actually had real talent. You could imagine him. He was already starting to mature beyond anything that could be possibly identified as, you know, quote unquote, SoundCloud rap. He was just a talented musician. It was interesting to see where he was going to go next. And we're not going to get to see that. One thing that people are talking about is this sense that the thematic concerns of rap shifted from dealing drugs to taking drugs, which is undeniably true. And Future, for one, has expressed some regret about the you know purported glorification of some drugs in his music, just the idea that it might have influenced people. Although I think, for me, that was always clearly a cartoon of his existence. He wasn't taking... He never took that many drugs and never expected anyone to take him literally. But I think what he regrets is the idea that anyone could have taken it literally. Yeah, Future also, you know, I wouldn't say he makes it sound fun. Like, he he mostly makes taking drugs sound, like, super sad and uh, emotional. But, yeah, there was a a really incredible quote uh, that he gave to our colleague Charles Holmes in an interview that uh, Future did with him last year. He was talking about collaborating with Juice World and talking about this sort of sobering realization that, you know, the way he put it was that he, you know, the realization that he might have inspired 
Juice World or kids like him to start drinking lean or using harder drugs because they thought listening to March Madness was cool. That was something that made him future feel bad. Uh, and that was just kind of a, a really incredible moment when you think about an artist like that sort of often artists are, are quick to brush off the idea of responsibility and you know, they say oh, i'm not a role model it's not in, my fault in fact do this feature himself i thought what was what was amazing when charles got that is feature himself had been asked that many times in the past and had many reactions none of them as sympathetic as that in the past he was like you know basically like fuck you would be one response <laughs> another response would be like i'm not a role model i think it was actually it was two things it was it was charles's interviewer but it also was perhaps his actual encounter with this actual person juice world who i guess perhaps acknowledged that influence in, in his life and music yeah i think that you know just to speculate here i think when you meet someone who's a fellow artist who you respect uh who's telling you to your face that you know you inspired them to do something self-destructive i think that's got to hit a little bit differently than a journalist asking you in a combative way that said i, I feel like the broader critique that jumped up Frankly, even before people really even knew the details of Juice World's death, there was this thing that jumped up on Twitter that was like, you know, rappers have, as I said, rappers switch from rapping about dealing drugs to doing drugs. And, oh, this has been like, this is killing these kids. And I, that feels to me like a leap too far, perhaps. I yeah, I, I would say that's too straight a line. Art is art. It's not like they're literally live streaming everything that they're rapping about. It, we're not watching it happen. I think you you got to allow for some interpretations of what these artists are, are talking about. And then in general, I would also say that when we talk about rappers rap, used to rap about drug dealing, like there were less rappers before. We've also like seen a shift from like this incredibly mythologized genre turn into something a little more personal with more stars and more people talking and more things being approached from different different ways. I think you also have to deal with this like step away from the Jay-Z model and then he's kind of supplanted by the Kanye's and Drake's about who are rapping more about their life and not trying to make it sound as rags to riches and more about this like impressionistic what is it like to be me approach. And I think almost everyone kind of stems from there and then Future's the other big influence on, on Juice World in particular where we have no idea what Future's doing but he had this heel turn in, in the early 2010s where he stops trying to make like anything resembling pop music and just makes this incredibly dark, incredibly pained trap music that kind of marries a lot of different things, like both musically. And then if you just think about it from a writing perspective and who knows like whether future was doing all the drugs, but he didn't make it sound fun. He made it sound like a living hellscape and the beats were really good. And that's kind of the thing that means you can't, you can't like just be, be like, this is what the art means because it's, it's art. Right. And that all started, uh, the heel turn started on the amazing mixtape Monster, which came out in, I think, 2014 by Future. And as I was saying in the break, I mean, I, I had it on close authority from both Future and people who worked with him that, in fact, he was never taking the level of drugs that he kind of rapped about. He took, he took the drugs <laughs> that he rapped about. Certainly I watched him take some of the drugs, but it never was in the well, sort he, of... He rapped about the amount of drugs that would kill a horse. Exactly, so, literally, exactly. Know. Yeah, so so that's that was... And he never intended that to be taken And then on, on the flip side, when, when Future quit drinking lean, he was he didn't tell people for a long time because he was worried it was going to mess with his image. So like all of this stuff is a little more tangled than rappers used to do this and now rappers do this. I just think it's the... Uh, is the lesson everyone needs to take away is like, just remember that these are real people trying to make art. I wanted to hit a point that you touched on, which was if we're 
to say anything about the SoundCloud movement. And again, SoundCloud is just a website that you can post your music to. You could post, you the listener can still, until they go out of business probably next year, who knows. Um, (laughs) At the moment, while they're still extant, you yourself could post music to SoundCloud. And if you rap on it, congratulations, you are a SoundCloud rapper. All that said, there was something to it. There certainly was, while not necessarily a, a unifying sound, there are some characteristics that unite a lot of this stuff, whether it's the emo side of it or not. And I would say one's just the, like you said, the democratization of it. A lot of it was kind of shitty sounding in a cool way or just shitty sounding in some cases, but the kind of distortion and the amateurishness of it and this almost punk rock energy, that was all part of what made this thing exciting to people. Right. And that's something that I think would have ultimately ended up changing regardless of the life circumstances of the artists who made it because the, you know, the artists who rose to the top were getting signed by major labels. They were starting to have access to real studios. They weren't uploading their stuff to SoundCloud anymore. The circumstances were changing. Yeah. I mean, and also the, the platform itself calcified. Like once you realized that you could get a major label deal by reaching like the top 10 on the SoundCloud charts, suddenly the major labels are paying so close attention that there's like a feedback loop that starts where the only people who are in the top 10 are already signed to major label contracts. What made the scene possible almost immediately went away. This is why I'm, I'm trying to get signed off TikTok. <laughs> I mean, but, that's, the, that's the way to go right now, honestly. <laughs> Certainly the, the democratization was important and also the blurring of genre lines, I think, was encouraged by the fact that these people were making music under no sort of preconceptions and with no established forces guiding them in any particular direction. And that's something that Juice World was clearly continuing. In fact, he was talking about making stuff in all kinds of genres. He was t- he talked in one interview that he was he was practicing screaming, I guess, in, in sort of a screamo way, but he said he, he hadn't quite mastered it yet. But which brings us to the fact that there's, as we know from our reporting, there's all of this unreleased music. Yeah. I mean, like I said, every every time I talked to him, I would ask him how many like extra songs he had, and it was usually in the hundreds. One of our reporters, Elias Light, did an interview with um, an executive at BMG, uh, which was who signed Juice to the, his publishing deal. Enterscope had him for the recording deal, and he estimates that there's over a thousand songs left in the vault. So I'm not really sure. Juice recorded incredibly quickly and all the time and was more willing than most artists to try new things so i genuinely have no idea what those thousand songs might sound like or if we'll ever hear them i would bet that there's a significant catalog left so could you imagine him being one of those artists who have an extraordinary sort of posthumous career because the other thing is like even if there's pieces of songs they could be end up as sort of features on other people's songs for years to come in addition to them making albums off of whatever they have. I think it's we're going to see with Juice and with a lot of these artists that we're, we've been talking about today, we're going to have to reevaluate what this posthumous career looks like because you're seeing some come out. XXX has his big posthumous album coming out, I believe, today. And you will see if the interest like sticks around. I think Juice was an incredibly talented artist, but like like I said, these things happen so fast now that people do lose interest pretty quickly in things. And so I don't know that like we'll, the audience will stay around for a thousand songs. It's a troubling thing to watch play out. Um, and I hope that like he is remembered as as he as he should be. But he is this week the most streamed artist in the world. Yeah, and that's this is the first week. 
and then we'll see what happens in the second and third. But yeah, obviously he he had some incredible songs, and yeah. So the the night of his death, I believe he was streamed about triple the amount of any other artist, and that that includes like the pop stars that you like the Ariana Grandes and Billie Eilish's and Justin Bieber's. Like no one was even like close to how how much the uh, rush of people listening to Juice World was. And of course, there's something a little grotesque. The music business is always kind of in this vampiric way, kind of like thrived off its dead artists. You know, it's always like a, a great career move in the short term to die at a young age. It just, the more it happens and the younger it happens, the kind of creepier it gets and the more patience I lose with it. I don't know what, what your take on it is. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, knowing how the music industry works, I would say we, we will almost definitely hear a lot of, you know, those whatever thousand, two thousand songs uh, are out there, whether they're good or not. Uh, I have a lot of, you know, hope that many of them will be good, but... I mean, what can be done if you could make the music industry sort of adopt some... And the problem is the music industry is such an amorphous term. I mean, what are we talking about? Record labels, management companies. But is there anything that can be done to try to keep things like this from happening? And with the caveat that, again, we don't even know exactly what happened. No. I mean, I don't don't know what kind of structural change would need to take place. The music industry is already such a... Uh, hold such a weird place in our society. It's not like his record label needs to... Like, I don't know that there is a person specifically to point to it in this case, at least not at least not now. With yeah, the I mean, I the little Peep case uh, had raised some alarming issues, but some of that may have been specific to him, and we'll see. But in general, and again, I wouldn't... We can't apply this to Juice work because we don't know what happened, and we don't know, for all we know, everyone around him was taking the best care that they possibly could in their jobs but in general you know if you look at Lil Peep as an example and if you go back even decades to other examples that there can be a tendency of people around an artist to function as enablers because they're the meal ticket and people don't say no to them and it's like but the question is how do you like you said what can you possibly do about that I mean people can try to behave more ethically but I mean you know when you have a sort of wild west that the music industry is there's no governing body that can make rules. There's no, it's, it's just, it's ungovernable and it's every artist is a little island to themselves and every management company is its own world. So, but at the same time, we can't have artists dying at age 21 and, and just accept that as a normal thing, right? I mean, even if there's nothing to be done, we can say that it's, this is awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I think you kind of laid it all out. You, we're talking about like basic questions of human psychology more than we are talking about like the, the structures that, that might help people. So no easy answers. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. has been today's episode. I'm Brian Hyde. I was in the studio with Brendan Klinkenberg and Simon Vozik levinson We tried to look at the life and music of Juice World. We will be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever we get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.